You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Welcome back to the Missing Witches podcast, to the Witches Found um, edition, version, universe of the Missing Witches podcast, where we get to talk to brilliant people, practitioners, researchers, poets who are out there doing the work themselves of making new kinds of witchcraft and new kinds of practice or um, who are finding those other missing stories and helping in this great collaborative work of unearthing what we sometimes like to call a feminist history of ideas. Today, I feel really lucky. I felt really lucky the moment that um, Nadra Niddle reached out because she reached out with a book that she's launching in October of this year about Toni Morrison. And she shared the book with us and shared this kind of huge labor of love of digging into all of these stories and the world they offer to us of folk tales and of black women who are magic and powerful and of the sort of violence that is deep in the blood and bones of the American experience and the Canadian experience as well. And so much more, just like some of the best fucking books I've ever read. And Nadra dug into them and sort of told this story that we don't get to hear enough about, about Toni Morrison's spirituality and the way it combines African folktales and magic and the weird magic of Catholicism and all of that. And so I'm sort of going off the rails with excitement of all the things I already know I want to talk to you about. But Nadra Niddle is here. She's a journalist and a storyteller and a historian. And, and I'm just really excited to have her here and also to have her here kind of bringing the voice of Toni Morrison into this world of Missing Witches, I wonder, Nadra, if you would introduce yourself in whatever way feels appropriate. What are you thinking about these days? What are, what brought you to this side of Toni Morrison's spirituality? Also, how is it where you are and how are you? Well, thank you for having me. I would describe myself as a journalist and a storyteller and on some level, um, an activist as well. I... I got into this aspect of, of Toni Morrison's spirituality a few years ago, actually before her death, an editor at a Catholic publication just randomly reached out to me. I had never written for them before. I'm not personally Catholic, but she reached out to me and wanted to know if I could explore the fact that Toni Morrison was a Catholic and and what that meant um, for two of her books. Song of Solomon was one of them. And um, also, I, I guess her body of literature overall, but Song of Solomon and Beloved were the two books in particular I explored in this one article. But because it was a Catholic publication, I couldn't really get into some of the witchiness and, and both Morrison's personal life and um, in her books as well. So when I got the opportunity to write this book, I really wanted to explore the full spectrum of her spirituality. I want to talk about activism and magic in California and, and more of your own experience writing for The Atlantic and The New York Times and all of the incredible work you do. But I also just want to get right into Toni Morrison and witches. So 
I will plant both those seeds for you and you tell me which way makes the most sense to go next. Sure. We can, we can dig into Toni Morrison Let's do and it. her being, yeah, <laughs> Toni Morrison's witches. Yeah. So Toni Morrison, she grew up in the 1930s and 40s and she came from an African-American family in Lorraine, Ohio. Um, both of her parents were transplants from the South. Her father had come from Georgia and her mother had come from Alabama. And both had learned, you know, African-American folk tales, but they also had a, a way of viewing the world, you know, that some would deem as magical in the sense that they believed that they had visitations from ghosts. Uh, they believed that they had to some degree psychic abilities. So Toni Morrison grew up in this environment where those things were, were accepted as opposed to question. She grew up fully aware and, and, and fully comfortable with this idea that science didn't explain everything that went on in the world. Ad break and <laughs> ad break, witches. <laughs> ad breaks are sponsored by Missing Witches. Um, <laughs> you know, we love you if you love us and you want to support us. There are lots of ways that you can do that. One of my personal favorites is our Patreon. There's always something going on on the message board there, but specifically, we do a monthly chat with those of our patrons who choose to join us. And it has been so rewarding for me, Risa. I think you can say the same thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just come join us. You'll see. You'll just be like, oh, I knew when I started listening to this podcast that I found my witch best friends and there must be like a badass gang of them out there gathering somewhere in the dark. And you were right. And it's on Patreon. <laughs> and our <laughs> Patreon is pay what you can. So it's not like there's a tiered system or whatever. You know, no. if you can afford a dollar a month or, or whatever else. We um, will welcome you with open arms. And yeah, our, our Patreon circles, we just learn from each other and they're rad and you should come. Yeah. And another excellent and exciting and thrilling to even say out loud way that you can support us is by buying our book, Missing Wishes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a paper copy if you're like me and you like to fuck a book up when you read it with a lot of same hard know. same i like to dog ear i have like a sigil system that i use to annotate my books but also like a lot of times uh i it just has to be an ebook because i know i'm gonna want to search things you know sometimes i like an ebook also it's available as an audiobook which risa and mm. i narrated ourselves there are musical versions of the carols those are two great ways you can support us through Patreon, through buying our book. You can review our book on your podcast, on your blog, on your uh, social media, on Goodreads, on Amazon. And if you really love this episode, you can tip us at PayPal, paypal.me slash missingwitches. And when she was little, she very small, she and her older sister, Lois, 
had an experience or their mother really had an experience on their behalf, um, they were exposed to, tur- to tuberculosis when they were small children. The doctors had wanted to put them in a sanatorium and Morrison's mother, Rama, said no. I guess she felt that her intuition told her that if she put her daughters in a sanatorium that they wouldn't come out alive. And so she made the decision to keep them out. Um, both of the girls lived and were healthy. And that was attributed to the, the mother's strong sense of intuition. And Morrison grew up feeling that her mother was right to make that decision because at the time they didn't have a cure for tuberculosis. So a lot of people who ended up going into sanatoriums actually died. There was about a 50-50 chance. So that was one of the things that deeply affected Morrison when she was growing up. But she also, in addition to that, just grew up hearing ghost stories and her grandmother would make bets based on dreams people had. So she really grew up in a world where people believed in magic. But in addition to that, they were also Christians. And so in that way, I think they were similar to many other African-Americans who kind of had these beliefs in, you know, African rooted in African spirituality. They had passed down folk tales, but they also identified as Christian. Her, her mother grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. But Morrison, when she was 12, she was really, I guess, lured by the rituals of the Catholic Church. She had some cousins who were Catholics. And so when she was 12, she made the decision to become a Catholic. So in that sense, she kind of departed spiritually from her immediate family. But she kind of kept all of these influences in her personal life and in her writing. You talk about in the book that that Catholicism is like not un weird <laughs> that it kind of like made sense in a way you know that it it that it has this idea of the miraculous um in a way that maybe protestantism or or other religions don't or don't acknowledge as as part of it and that maybe that was like a way for her to bring her feelings about the supernatural or about magic or about this element this this aspect of the world that was unseen into her faith do you think that there's like a root there for those of us who struggle with balancing the faith we grew up in with this sense that there's more to it all yeah I mean I think the difference between her mother's religion the AME church and Catholicism was one I think just as a child you know just the ritual of the Catholic church Mm-hmm. You know, a first communion, things like that. I'm sure she would she would have seen her cousins her age go through that ceremony. So she's she spoke out a little bit about how just the ceremony alone, the aesthetics of the church, those things kind of lured her in. But also you're right in terms of how Catholics believe in miracles. And it's not that Protestants don't believe in miracles, but I think Protestants, and I, and I grew up Protestant, I would say, you know, we tend to believe more in the miracles of the past, that Jesus walked on water and, you know, um, what he did with the fish and, and loaves of bread and 
wine. We tend to believe in, in, in those sorts of things. But I would say Catholics right now in the here and now, they still believe in miracles. They still believe that they're, you know, crying statues of the Virgin Mary and they will send someone out to investigate those claims, which is very much different um, from the Protestant church. I think the other thing with Catholicism and African spirituality in particular is that the saints in Catholic church, many people throughout the African diaspora have seen similarities between the Catholic saints and then, you know, the spirit, say in the Yoruba pantheon and, and other um, West African religions, um, they've seen similarities between the saints and, and their own spirits, gods, whatever you want to call them. And so when Catholicism, in some cases, was imposed upon them, they, they didn't give up their original beliefs. They, they just kind of saw which Catholic saints correlated with their own, um, with their own gods or, or spirits. And they kind of merged the two together. So they basically practice syncretism. And I think on some level, Morrison has never openly said that, but I think on some level that may have also appealed to her. Yeah, I I highlighted the line. Um, and I, I think she says it a couple of times, or at least you quote it like a couple of times in different contexts, but this idea, this often repeated folktale about Africans flying home and her like kind of haunting question, perhaps it was wishful thinking, but what if it wasn't? What would that mean? I love the way that that question, you know, even just from a, the perspective of like writerly magic, the way that that question opens doors in what the world is. I love that. I love that idea. And I also love that little bit of history that you share in the book about the colonization or um, the sort of missionary application of Catholicism in the Congo that and you can tell it better than I can that the sort of mapping of the faith onto an existing faith and just renaming that it, it almost wasn't even syncretic. It was just like they believed they had found a religion that had a wholesale understanding of God and then they just renamed it. Yeah. So the, so the kingdom of Congo, which I really knew little about before writing this book, but they're an interesting civilization in the sense that we often hear about you know, Catholicism, Christianity, these things being forced on African people as the, as the result of enslavement, as a result of colonization. But in the Kingdom of Congo, um, Portugal was one of their trading partners in the 15th century. And so they were exposed to Catholicism um, due, due to that relationship, but they had not been colonized by Portugal or any other European power. Um, they were not enslaved at that time. And so I thought it was really interesting in the sense that we have this, you know, at powerful African civilization um, that pretty much heard about Catholicism and, and decided, at least some members of their royal family at the time, decided 
um, that they that they would practice that. But like you said, they didn't just take you know the European version of Catholicism and and take that as their own. They they took their own right Central African belief systems and in some ways just notice the parallels. And so they didn't necessarily have a name for what, you know, this religious practice that they were doing was. I mean, loosely, you could say it was Catholicism, but it was also distinct from the Catholic Church um, in Europe. So they really kind of, they were exposed to Catholicism and, and made it their own. And I think that's interesting because, like I said, we often hear about Black people kind of having no choice as to what religion they practice. And this was a case of a, of a civilization that, you know, was interested in Catholicism. Catholicism. They started building Catholic schools and, and churches on their own, but independently. Would you say that's part of what is powerful and kind of witchy about some of Morrison's Black women characters too, this idea that sort of flips the idea of their choice on its head? Like sometimes it's painful and tragic and it's a world of limited choices, but there's like, there's like sort of a, a beautiful power there too. I, I guess I'm thinking about Sula, but. Yeah. I mean, I would say in Sula and every book there, there are kind of these similar characters, these, you know, typically older, powerful, mm-hmm. very, you know, resilient, self-assured black women who have really defined their own spirituality um, on their own terms outside of the, the bounds of the church, whether it's a a Protestant church or a Catholic church, um, whatever it is. So they end up kind of taking their own or kind of making their own way in terms of the spiritual world. And it really starts in The Bluest Eye, Morrison's first book, which came out in 1970. Often these characters are not the protagonists of the book, but if you read you know, in each one, you can find a character like this. But in The Bluest Eye, there was a character named Madeer. She's she's only in there briefly, but it's clear that she is the healer in the town. She lives kind of in the woods away from everyone else. Um, no one really knows how old she is. And she, you know, she knows how to kind of listen to the body and, and determine um, what's wrong with people. And, and when, you know, traditional or, you know, kind of traditional Christian prayers or when, um, conventional medicine does not work, they know that they need to go, um, to Madeir. So she's definitely kind of revered and not just revered, but her powerfulness, um, is, is a cut above, you know, both conventional religion and conventional Christianity. And in Sula, there are characters like this as well. Um, Sula's grandmother, Eva Peace, is a a character who also in some ways, um, you know, is a healer. But there's another woman, she's not even named. So 
She's the mother of Sula's love interest, Ajax. And it says, you know, how she's, she practices hoodoo. So the African-American um, folk tradition of, of hoodoo, mm-hmm. um, which has roots in West Africa and Central Africa. But she practices all of those things. And people go to her because she can kind of, um, she knows how to read the weather. She knows bad um, you know, bad omens, good omens, people come from her, come to her for all sorts of things. But Eva Peace, who is more of a major character character in the book, um, is also very into dreams. And when there's a, a tragedy that occurs with her own child, she believes she kind of, she should have already seen the signs um, in her dreams. And that's something, again, that Morrison's own mother and grandmother um, really put a lot of stock in um, were dreams. They didn't believe there was really a difference between the subconscious world and, you know, the conscious world. And I think that is, that's reflected um, throughout, you know, Morrison's literature. But I also feel that a lot of African-Americans, at least of a, of a certain age, kind of grew up with that kind of cosmology or mindset that your your dreams meant something. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to that amazing line about the Africans flying back home. Like, what if it was true? You know, what if what if it was true that that what they list, what they heard in their dreams was telling them something? What was what if it was true? Oh, and I can explain that, too. So for people who don't know, there's this folktale about flying Africans. And it was really popular in Georgia where Morrison's father came from. But the folktale basically is that during the Middle Passage, so when Africans were, you know, forcibly brought to the Americas, um, you know, hundreds, thousands jumped overboard. But the African-American folktale is arguing that we don't actually know what happened to these people that some of these people, um, instead of jumping to their deaths, actually were able to fly away. There's other versions of the folktale that suggest that those who actually did complete the Middle Passage and they ended up enslaved in the Americas, they resisted slavery. You know, they would be, someone would be working in the fields and all of a sudden, um, they would say some magical words, and the next thing you know, they had flown home um, back to Africa. So that's the folktale, and that's the basis of her book, Song of Solomon. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but I, I do love the big the big what if in there. It reminds me of, um, I interviewed um, a writer named Dr. Marina Magloire about Lucille Clifton, and um, she talked about the idea that there are these stories of women and especially of black women and queer women um, and indigenous women that exceed the archives. And that it's like, it's incredibly heartbreaking that we don't have the stories and we don't know what happened, but it's also in her view, like, incredibly empowering because they slip out of the edges of the control of the archive. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think Morrison, you know, she never came out and said, you know, whether she wholeheartedly believed in the, the flying Africans folktale or not, but she certainly 
seemed to respect those who did. And, you know, she, she never publicly said, I mean, she even uh, at some times there, there was a New Yorker interview and some other interviews she gave where she even seemed a little bit defensive where she would say, look, I know it sounds ridiculous, but this is what, you know, the black people I knew growing up, this is what they believed. And she thought that that was, you know, a, a valid belief, whether, um, it had literally happened or even if it was a way for people to kind of comfort themselves um, in the fact that so many Black people face just, you know, extraordinary violence and subjugation, they, they turned that into something that was more hopeful by saying that somehow through magical means, um, some of these people were able to, to liberate themselves. Mm. I love the the idea that you outlined that she she made a distinction between the the beliefs and stories in those folk tales as being um, magical or or fanciful or fictional versus them being a part of the world of the real world, of the natural world that was just outside the known bounds of, you know, white dominant culture and knowledge, you know, that, that these things could be, could be possible or that there's, that, that at least those stories nod at a whole realm of knowledge that it exceeds the grasp of, you know, current science at least, you know, I, I love that. Yeah. And, and one thing that I talk about too, is just, you know, Morrison's relationship with the word magic. It's a word that she used, but she also was concerned about when it was applied to her work, especially magical realism. So she kind of took offense to the term magical realism because she didn't want people to think that the magic in her books was just a literary device she was pretty adamant that, you know, any magic you see in her books, it, it was not a literary de- device. This is what, you know, her characters, just like, you know, many Black people in the real world, this is what they believed in. This is what their belief systems were. And she's arguing that, you know, the belief systems were called magic by, you know, their colonizers who who kind of discredited their spirituality and religious beliefs. But she's saying, you know, their, their, their beliefs, you know, West African spirituality or African-American traditions like hoodoo, et cetera, that these beliefs and practices are, are just as valid as Christianity, as Judaism, as any other religion. So she, you know, kind of defended her work against the term magical realism. But at the same time, she she did use the word magic herself. But I think she wanted people to understand um, that these beliefs, you know, were valid. But also she, she was very um, adamant as well about the fact that Black people believed in magic that this was part of African-American culture. Um, she talked about one person, you know, asking her that pretty incredulously, um, you believe in magic? And her response was, yes, you believe in germs, don't you? 
that's part of our culture. So <laughs> she certainly believed in magic herself and just believed this was a part of African-American culture. At the same time, she was concerned that younger generations of African-Americans had kind of turned away from magic, from folk tales, from all these cultural traditions that they, they had grown embarrassed by them. And as they assimilated more to, you know, white American norms and European norms that they wanted to distance themselves from magic. And that was something that saddened her. So what do you think Toni Morrison would say, or maybe what do you say with your knowledge of Toni Morrison and, and the collages you can make of her ideas to, we, we've had um, Black listeners tell us, and I just had a conversation with a, an incredible poet, um, Black witch, about this, this sort of pull that can be painful if you grew up in certain kinds of uh, white churches or black churches or churches in the South that like as a, you know, Canadian in the woods of Quebec, I have, I have really like a lot of ignorance about, but you might feel like drawn to an idea of your own power being framed as witch, or you might be drawn to the idea of like magic and things in the natural world having, you know, a spirit or, or something that calls to you, but you might be scared of the devil like in, in a really profound way um but or you know or even scared of of a witch and what that means you know of, of a relationship with the devil um yeah what do you think she would say or what do you feel like saying based on what you know she said yeah I mean based on what I know about what she said and, and she explores a lot of this in in her book paradise um, which came out in the late 90s. Um, she explores a lot of those ideas about kind of, you know, conventional Christianity uh, through an African-American lens versus, um, you know, some, some women of various backgrounds in the same book who end up practicing um, condomble, though she never describes it as that. I know that she, she actually did research about um, that particular Yoruba-based practice um, that's widespread in, in Brazil. So I think, um, I definitely don't think that, you know, Morrison seemed to fear that somehow, you know, embracing these ancestral, you know, African traditions meant that, you know, she was evil or that her characters were evil. I think her body of work is really a response against that. But I certainly know what, you know, the people you're saying you talk to, um, you know, are discussing because m many people, sadly, I think one of the um, worst effects of white supremacy is that it, it taught people throughout the African diaspora to view their own ancestral religious beliefs as evil. And when you're, mm. you know, watching TV shows and movies and, you know, say voodoo comes up, it's almost always framed as something um, that's an evil religion. The characters who are practicing these religions are always, um, you know, or often doing harm to others and mm -hmm. um, frequently not for, you know, reasons that are justified either. So there's this kind of pop culture framing 
of African-based spirituality and religion that's very negative. And I think in some Black churches, um, for sure, they would also look at anyone who kind of had an interest um, in these ancestral practices as doing something bad. But at the same time, like what I was saying about the Kingdom of Congo, um, the Black church, even, you know, the African-American church is different from white Christian churches. Um, Black churches, they are doing um, things that are rooted in African spirituality, you know, things like call and response, or there's something called the ring shout. You know, people, I guess, say, you know, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start shouting and, and moving in certain ways. That's not something that comes from white Christianity. That's something that comes from um, African, different African cultures, specifically West African um, culture. That's, they've picked up um, those practices. So I think that's what I would say to some of those people who, mm. who frame some of those beliefs um, as evil or even something like jumping the broom when one gets married, you know, we can trace so much, um, of these traditions back to Africa. So while enslavement, you know, one of the goals of enslavement was to kind of break, you know, black people in a sense to dehumanize them and, and break them as individuals, um, you know, enslavement did not successfully sever, you know, our ties with Africa and specifically with African-based religions. They're still there. I just don't think everyone, you know, including African-Americans themselves, sometimes realize um, how we're still practicing some of these things. Mm, oh, that's such a powerful answer. And it makes me want to ask you this. Do you see your own work um, as a historian, as a storyteller, story retriever, as a writer activist, as being part of a project of magic, of world-changing magic? I don't know about world-changing. Come on! (laughs) But I do think writing is certainly magical. I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's magical in the sense that, I mean, you're taking nothing, you're taking a blank page, right? And you know, creating something out of it, whether it's a page or two or it's 200 pages. I mean, I think there's mm-hmm. something magical about, you know, uh, creating something from nothing. And then there's this other idea, right, that it's not nothing, that you're kind of a vessel. I know many writers and artists believe that, that we're kind of vessels or vehicles, you know, from, you know, whether it's spirits, ancestors, who knows, that the we're being used as kind of a vessel to kind of get something mm-hmm. out there, you know, that um, we are, we're more like communicators than necessarily just creators, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. It's so weirdly witchy perfect that you would weave that into that question because so much of our season this season is about channeling and that was not something we set out to do. It was just all the all the witches stories that we were digging into and the people we interviewed it keeps coming up this idea of of what it, what it is to do a channeled work what it means to be channeling um what it means to be you know a cup that spirit is pouring through or 
you know, in my view, sometimes it's like I'm I'm plugging into the mycelium networks of ancestors around me or something. I, I like to rationalize it more to do with the trees or something, maybe. But um, well, that's funny that you would bring that in. Do you ever feel like you are are being used as a vessel? I mean, so I feel that the most when I'm writing late at night. Mm. So there are times I've been writing and I've started to fall asleep. And maybe I was struggling with something. I remember in particular, I was writing something. I was writing an essay. I was struggling with the ending and I kind of drifted off to sleep. And I woke up at some point later, I don't know. And I I just had the ending. It was there. It was like something, you know, told me how to end this piece. So definitely for me, um, during those moments between, you know, the subconscious and the conscious, you know, when, when I'm in and out of sleep, I feel like there's some magic that happens. And I found out recently that Einstein, I think, and some other people, they purposely kind of like to put themselves in that state of not quite awake, not quite asleep because they felt that they were somehow, you know, tapping into, um, some body of knowledge that they otherwise would not be able to. So I, I definitely, I feel like for me, that's, that's the, uh, biggest, or that's usually when I felt like that, um, there's times in the past, I, I don't really write fiction anymore, but when I was younger, you know, I was exploring writing fiction and, and definitely I would say writing fiction too. You kind of feel like your characters are informing you and kind of telling you what to do. So the characters in some ways, you know, kind of feel like spirits, you know, with their own stories um, that you didn't necessarily know about or think of when you set out to write something. So, yeah, I mean, as a writer for me, I definitely feel like I've experienced that. Yeah, me too. Even if it's just, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic, witch atheist who talks to the universe, you know, so I, I, I could turn myself in circles about this stuff forever, but, um, even if it's just, you know, these, these waves of energy that are all around us, that are making their way through our dense and incredibly complex brains, you know, some, somehow something about ritual or, um, drugs or sleepiness or like things that shift us into um you know what monica show and others have called the the moon mind or a way of being a little bit less in fucking control all the time that that lets (laughs) lets new ideas happen um i wanted to to ask you to talk about this is not really a question but just like think tell me what you think about um sula and nell and this idea that um, that Sula was missing a craft or that she was missing an art, you know, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really powerful. So Sula, um, for people who don't know, that was Morrison's second book. And it's about two friends who are growing up in um, this town. It's a fictional town, Medallion, Ohio. And um they're, they're two girls who kind of come from different sorts of families. So Nell is more um, middle class with her, her mother is Catholic. Her mother grew up in Louisiana and is very kind of prim and proper and Catholic. And her father 
you know, as a successful businessman. And then we have Sula who, who kind of grew up in this house um, filled with women um, without any men. And also it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a community house an open house in the sense that her grandmother allows all, you know, anyone in the neighborhood, if they need a place to stay, they can, they can stay, um, at, at that house. So Sula, um, she's also faced, I guess, some tragedy. Her, her father died, um, when she was very small, so she didn't know him. And then she overhears her mother saying that she doesn't really like her that much. Mm-hmm. And they have a, Sula and her friend now have, have another tragedy that kind of results in a, in a young boy dying. And this is something that kind of bonds them together without giving away too much. If you haven't, you know, for people who haven't read it, it, it bonds them together, but it also kind of shows uh, the true nature of, of both of these young girls. So Sula, um, after, after this one tragedy happens with this small boy, she's kind of uh, broken in a sense. And she almost in some way, she loses her, loses her empathy. And when she's an adult, she ends up kind of (laughs) engaging in a lot of destructive behaviors, including, um, betraying her best friend Nell in, in a very problematic way. And so, there's one part in the book where Morrison says that if Sula had a craft, right, she maybe she wouldn't have been engaging in these both self-destructive and, and destructive to others um, sorts of behavior, like betraying people and just kind of abandoning people and um, mistreating her grandmother and a series of other things. And uh, the reason I, I think one reason she's framed as a I, I think the character is a little um, autobiographical in the sense that Morrison was this woman who left her community. Sula leaves, leaves her community to go to college. Um, and Morrison has talked about how when she went to college, she was a little bit of a wild child. But she also was kind of anchored in art. She was part of drama clubs. Obviously, she was interested in writing, though at that time she didn't know, you know, that she was um, she was going to be one of the best novelists um, in our country. But she already had a love of literature, so she kind of had something to do with, you know, some place to put. Um, this kind of wild child energy. And there's a line in the book, Sula, where the narrator is saying that Sula didn't have a place for um, this energy to go. And so she ended up turning it outward to other people. But the other thing I think was interesting about Sula is just, you know, the descriptions of how she's dressed. Um, You know, she when she comes back to town, she's she's kind of described in a way that stereotypically looks like a witch, like she's wearing, you know, a black hat and a long black, you know, coat. And there's a, um, all the birds die when she comes back. So there's there's a lot of magic that accompanies her return to town um, that's, that's kind of magical. So many people in the town view her as a, some sort of evil force um, that they hope goes away, but they don't actually extinguish. And then her friend, um, who believes in her 
and just sees the best in her, views her as bringing kind of this magical goodness back to town. So I don't want to go on too much about that, but that, that's in the gist, some of the things that's, that's going on with that novel. And I would also say, just really quickly, there's also a lot of religion in the book as well, though it, it doesn't seem super obvious. It, it's there. Mm. Yeah, I want to sort of tuck that into our hearts, listeners, that like when we're um, flailing or um, being wild childs or, you know, walking through town full of power and the birds are falling out of the sky or um, have, having a lot of sex or or making like shitty choices or our power is like sort of sprawled out all over the place. Um, Toni Morrison suggests that witches are in need of a craft. So I think just keep turning our hands to to creation, to imagination, because I think we need it. I think our bodies call for it. And I think I, I love that Toni Morrison saw that in herself and in Sula, who she has so much sympathy for and who I also love. Um, we frequently end these strange podcasts um, by asking our guests if there's something and you know, you could frame it in whatever way makes sense to you, but like um, a practice, um, you know, we're going to be heading into the deep part of the fall, the final harvest. Um, you are a writer admirable in your labor and output and in the places that you have found to share your voice. Maybe you have a personal ritual or incantation or just a writing practice that you do, something that our listeners could borrow from you and sort of tuck into their lives at the end of this episode. Sure. Uh, I would say there are a couple of things that I like to do. Um, uh, one thing that really helps me, I would say, would be guided meditations just based on what I feel at the time. Mm. So it could be a, a guided meditation, you know, about healing, for example. Um, if I'm not feeling well or guided meditation about confidence, if, you know, sometimes as a writer, I get anxious and I, I'm not feeling so confident. So I think listening to guided meditations, especially again, to bring back that, you know, in between kind of wake and, and sleep that time, I, I think it really has a strong effect on my subconscious. So if I listen to a guided meditation as I'm going to bed or when I first wake up, I think that helps me. I also, you know, like to sometimes, not all the time, really, you know, light candles and um, say affirmations, especially, you know, this idea that Audre Lorde discussed about, um, you know, self-care mm -hmm. being a political act. That's one thing I try to tell myself and affirm for myself in a world where I, I don't always feel very valued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really powerful one. And I hope that next time you are channeling Audre Lorde and reminding yourselves that self-care is a revolutionary and political act, um, 
Nadja, you know that you're deeply valued and your magic is world changing <laughs> because we are lucky. All of our listeners feel a little bit changed, I'm sure, and a little bit lit up by your research and also by this window into this like monumental novelist who offers us a little bit of belief in magic. And I, I'm really thankful for that, especially when the world feels dark and shitty and it's hard to find anchors for our craft and our activism. So thanks. Can you tell the people where they can find you? So I have a website called Nadra Niddle. So it's N-A-D-R-A Niddle. It rhymes with little, but it starts with an N and Nancy. So nodraniddle.com. I have a website there. And then you can also find me on Twitter. So that's twitter.com backslash Nadra Kareem, K-A-R-E-E-M as in Mary. Perfect. Thanks. We'll also share those links in the show notes as we always do and yeah just thank you again so much for being here thank you all of you who come to join us in this uh, strange coven we make between our ears as the days get darker and we try to hold a light for each other and faith in the magic of the world and in each other be safe guys blessed fucking be you must be a witch <laughs>